And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. Excited to be joined today by Seth Radman today. He's done a few different things in his past we'll talk about, and he's got a new company called Infinite Giving. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. Seth, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Matt. So we um, we recently had some fun times on LinkedIn. Do you want to tell our little LinkedIn story? <laughs> yeah, we did. So... If you don't know me, I'm a pretty uh, consistent LinkedIn poster. Every morning, I try to post some new tip or piece of advice that helps founders and entrepreneurs build products. I've built a lot of products, mentored a lot of founders, and I try to help other founders learn from the mistakes I've made and lessons I've learned. And one of the things that I'm kind of obsessed with is physically making my LinkedIn posts look pretty, like physically, visually pretty. It's easier to scan, yeah, easier yeah. to read, and it just feels nicer. So. Yeah, I built this app that essentially sorts the lines in your LinkedIn post from you know ascending or descending orders, so that it's easy to skim and look through. Which, you know, I built a little iPhone app. Took me a couple hours. Put it on the App Store just so people could try it out. Um, and launched it. It was my little MVP. Did one thing, and that was it. Um, and then six hours later, I get a message from Matt saying, "Hey, I'm about to tag you in something." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be good." And uh, you used. GPT-3, or maybe it was 3.5, the latest one, to essentially ask GPT to recreate what I had just built manually using AI. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was Which awesome. Was actually, it, it, was, it was fun. And you, you gave me a little inspiration. I'm like, man, I wonder if OpenAI will just do this. And uh, it was actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be because um, trying to get it to account for the width of the fonts and stuff. Um, and I yeah, guess that's the, the problem with part. AI... That's the problem with AI is like things that seem really trivial or maybe kind of trivial, but as soon as things get complicated, it's like, it, you know, code programming is telling the computer what to do, right? So AI isn't much different. You have to tell the AI what to do with obscene detail to get it to do certain things. So people think it's some magical tool for changing software development, but yeah, I think it's I think it's just as hard as programming in some degree. It is, and especially with ChatGPT, I think what we're seeing is it really is requiring a new skill set, which is prompt design and training, right? That used to be, yeah. you had to be like an expert in machine learning or AI to know how to train an algorithm or fine tune it. But now you can train ChatGPT because every time you go to a new chat, it's like a baby. It's completely blank, knows nothing. And you have to train it, you know, through some prompts that you put in first to help it do what you're trying to do. So it is interesting that it's this yeah. generalized expert that you have to, you have to give it some guidance, but Definitely, I hear all the time, oh, AI is going to take over our jobs. And yeah, I'm sure it's going to automate some stuff, but hopefully it automates more of the tedious, annoying stuff that enables us to think more creatively 
to do things that AI can't do? Because I think we can all agree there's still a huge world of things that AI can't do, may not able be able to do for a while, or may not ever be able to do. So it is it is fun to see where so, things are, though. So that was that was our fun little uh, link, LinkedIn story from last week. But so tell us a little more about yeah. your background, and um, obviously you have a background in in software development and stuff. And so tell us a little more about your background. Yeah, so I actually studied mechanical engineering in college. I went to Georgia Tech and worked at an aircraft company for a bit. And I was plotting stress train curves for almost all my day. These would be millions of data points. It would take 10 minutes for this data to load and Excel would just lock up and I'd have to sit there and wait. And one day I thought, all right, there's got to be a better way to do this. I'm just clicking a button, waiting 10 minutes, clicking a button, waiting 10 minutes. And so I stumbled upon Visual Basic in Excel, right, where I can actually code stuff to happen in Excel. And I started with simple things like just retrieving a value of a cell and then doing some math. And eventually I had actually automated my entire job at the aircraft company. And that kind of got me into the software space. I'm a accidental software engineer, if you will, that I'm completely self-taught and have essentially just picked up coding to solve problems that I experienced. So I've, I've built about 40 iPhone apps. Um, it's a very large number. Most of them were just ideas I had to solve problems I experienced. And a couple of them ended up being the problems that a lot of other people experienced too, that I went on to do specific startups for. But for me, I just like building products. I think it's really fun to find problems that are really annoying in life and write code that will automate solving those problems for you. So you can focus on more enjoyable things in life. So I've, in college, I built 40 iPhone apps and then I've done two music tech startups. One of them was Crescendo. It was an interactive music trainer, like Guitar Hero, but for real instruments. We grew that to over a million users and were acquired by Ultimate Guitar. And then during the pandemic, I created another product that was kind of like Zoom for musicians. So you can play in real time, because if you've been on Zoom singing Happy Birthday, you know there's latency and that doesn't work if you're playing music. We grew to a couple hundred thousand users in a few months and then got acquired by a Paraspace company. And now I'm working on something in a completely different area, which is fintech for nonprofits, helping nonprofits create endowments and accept crypto and stock donations at infinite giving. So I've kind of gone the full spectrum of, frankly, just building a lot of stuff, having some stick, getting lucky with some things, getting unlucky with other things, but still showing up every day and trying to do the best I can. Well, so the music, the music stuff that you mentioned, I'm going to guess comes from your passion of music, right? Like, it's not like you're like, I don't know anything about music, but I'm going to go create software for musicians yeah i'm a saxophone player i started playing saxophone in fourth grade and have that's a huge part of my life i start on saxophone then i did marching band at georgia tech i did drum corps i played trumpet and jazz band i play in a funk blues rock band called the vinyl sons we have a good time here in atlanta so yeah i've uh probably almost as equally as my identity is like a product builder and entrepreneur and software engineer i'm, I'm also a musician so i i definitely built the product that I personally wanted to have or that my younger self wanted to have. And that's what I've done for all my companies so far. I've simply built products that solve my problems, but also talk with enough customers yeah. to realize that it solves their problems too. Well, and I think that's the key lesson here as, as other entrepreneurs that are listening is solving a problem that you understand firsthand. And for you, that journey started by being becoming a software developer to solve, you know, the the problems you described earlier with with spreadsheets and stuff right and it's just scratching your own itch it's like i understand this problem and i can solve it 
And uh, those are a couple of great examples of businesses that you started that you had expertise in, saw the problem, figured out that you could solve the problem, solved it in a, in a unique way. And there were, you know, figured out there was a market for it and create a business, which is the absolute best way to create a business is, is creating something that you have experience in and in an industry that you have experience in that you understand the problems. It is. And it's great for a couple of reasons. I think the biggest one is you just have a massive advantage of understanding the problem to a depth and degree that other people, you know, it'll take you a lot, a lot of customer interviews and learnings to finally get to that same mental state. Cause when I say understand the problem, I don't mean, Oh, it's boring to have to wait on Excel to plot this data for me. It's man, the emotional impact of, am I getting fulfillment from this job? And is this something where I'm engaged? Right? So a problem, you know, talking about emotional problems that are manifested in physical ways, but we're solving emotional needs here. But the second, the second big advantage, at least for me as a technical founder is there's really pretty, you know, pretty low bar expectation for what's going to happen with the business for some of these that to me, I view them a lot as just like fun hobbies where I'll build products that help me in the worst case scenario is one, I've learned something new and had fun building with a new technology. And two, I get my problem solved. <laughs> so a lot of the products that I've built, even if some people might call them failures, most of them have helped me solve my own problems and have been quite successful for me. So it's it's definitely a very fulfilling route when you can build stuff that helps you and helps a lot of other people too. So the couple of music apps that you built, that you had a lot of success with, did you end up having some other co-founders and, and, and what, what did that look like as far as helping do the go-to-market strategy and selling the product and all that kind of stuff? That's a great question. I've had a co-founder for every startup I've done so far, although they weren't always there right when I started. Sometimes they came in a couple months later after I realized that, you know, my idea had some legs and wanted to run with it. But yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm definitely not the, the smartest all-encompassing person who could do every single task for a startup and even if i could there's only so much time in the day uh we've you've probably seen the stats right if you have a co-founder your chances of success are are much higher not just because you have more skill sets on the team and more time but i've also found just because of the emotional support to be able to keep persisting and keep going when things get really hard because on a on a daily basis well as founders i was gonna say on a daily basis as founders you know we you know, it's not like we're doing super hard stuff every day. The hardest, the hardest part I think is persisting and continuing when, when things get really hard. And that's when solo founders tend to quit a little earlier than, you know, co-founders who are working together on a team. Well, it takes a lot of grit, right? And that's part of the reason we call it the startup hustle too, is you got to figure out how to do a lot of things. You got to put in a lot of effort doing things that you maybe don't know anything about, which includes, um, chasing around potential customers and trying to talk to them and figuring out marketing, figuring out sales, figuring out how to build a product. Like you're, you're running around trying to figure out how to do a lot of shit that maybe you don't know anything about at all, but it just takes a lot of hustle to, to figure them out. It just takes a lot of grit and you got to put in the time. And as you said, it's like, if you have a co-founder, at least you can split up that mess. It's like you figure out this part of it and I'll figure out this part of it. They're both hard. We don't know what we're doing, but we got to figure it out. Yeah, it definitely helps. And there's also a part where, gritting through all that is it's really hard when you wake up you know 20 or 30 days in a row constantly getting rejected by investors or customers not seeing the traction you want but still believing in your idea and your product and your vision and your business sometimes it's tough to find the energy to keep going and there's definitely some times for previous startups where if i were by myself i probably would have quit 
But the reason why I kept going yeah. is because I didn't want to let my co-founder down. And they told me I didn't want to let you down. And we both found out after we got acquired, hey, we were both ready to quit because we were just over it. But we didn't want to let the other person down. But we never said that. So we just kept plowing through. And thank goodness we did. But yeah, there's uh, some serious ups and downs. But the other thing is that not many people know what you're going through as a founder, right? Even other founders, everyone experiences different kinds of struggles and problems. And I found that working with someone else who can completely empathize with what you're going through because they are going through it too, it's it's therapeutic. It definitely helps if you have that open path of communication to talk with your co-founder and just figure out what you're both feeling together and go through it as a team. So it's it's the path I've chosen so far. I'll probably continue to keep on that path because I just think it's more fun interacting with people. You know, as humans, we're social beings, we're meant to interact with others. And that's what I've enjoyed so far. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And especially when you have other employees too. I mean, you, no, no matter how bad things could be or frustrating things could be, you still have to go to your employees and tell them, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep doing this thing. Um, even though you might be an emotional wreck because you're struggling with how are we going to make payroll or I can't find the investors or how are we going to sell more of this thing or whatever, then you're going to your employee who does customer service or whatever, and maybe none of that matters to any of them. They don't care. It doesn't affect their job. And you got to you know pump them up and tell them that they're doing a good job, right? Well, at the same time, you're battling all these other problems. Like, like I mean, that that's part of the struggle of being an entrepreneur. It's definitely a delicate balance that, you know, on one side, you want to be optimistic and confident with your leadership style, you know, so that everyone on the team is pumped. On the other side, you don't want to be deceitful with how things really are. And I found that the best leaders, and I'm trying to get there, like my co-founder, Karen, she's the perfect embodiment of this. She's optimistic and forward thinking and, you know, sees the glass half full as you kind of have to. You have to be naively optimistic, I think, to do a startup because statistically, you're just going to fail. Statistically, right? But on the other side, she tells it like it is, right? When things are bad, she's like, hey, things aren't great. Here's some paths I see forward. Let's talk about how we can do that. So it's it's a definitely a fine balance of of high optimism bias and momentum, but also this kind of radical transparency of here's where we are and here's where we're going to go. Well, I think that's important, you know, in startups with your employees too, because they can't help you if you don't tell them about the problem, right? You know, exactly. Even if like you're struggling with sales or whatever, and you've got a customer support person that maybe that's not really their job. But if you say, hey, look, we need help with sales and maybe they can help. Maybe like, hey, well, I have an extra hour or two a day. I can do this thing or whatever, right? If you don't tell them, they can't help. And a lot of times your team will help if you tell them, but you just have to figure out how to frame up that story and tell them. You don't want to scare them either, but um, they can't help if you don't tell them. It just comes down to communication, right? And I don't think you can ever over communicate too much. And the best leaders I know, you know, they tell you what they're going to tell you. They tell you the thing and then they tell you what they told you, right? Just like sales. And so you really got to have frequent, honest, open communication to help that work across a team. And the best teams that I know communicate frequently and very clearly. And, and especially while so many people are remote building software this day, it's, it's absolutely essential. So are you, so with your new company, Infinite Giving, why don't you tell us a little more about it and, and what it does? You mentioned earlier, it has to do with giving, allowing people to give donations to nonprofits, right? Yeah. So we're, uh, my co-founder, Karen, she used to be the vice president of Atlanta Tech Village, which is the fourth largest tech hub here in Atlanta. Before that, she used to be the executive director of a nonprofit. And so, you know, she did the nonprofit and then she got to help a lot of tech startups 
build companies at the co-working space and tech hub that she worked at. And she, she saw a big gap where nonprofits are still doing a lot of tech stuff, very old fashioned way, right? Some of them are using big banks that are not meant for nonprofits. They're meant for for profit companies. And there's just not a lot of great financial tools out there to help nonprofits with certain things. And so we set out to essentially create the financial OS or the financial platform for nonprofits that help them do a few things. It helps them manage endowments, right? That we think about endowments, we think like the Harvard endowment, you have to have, you know, 10 expert investment advisors on a team managing all that. Well, we've transformed that into an online platform that's a robo-advisor that enables anyone with very limited financial knowledge to be able to go through this confidently because we guide them. So we help you create an endowment in 10 minutes online. We help you receive stock and crypto donations online without having to deal with exchanges or know how wallets work or understand, you know, tax harvesting or capital gains and losses and all that stuff. So essentially we've just made, made it very easy for the everyday person to go online, just like they would open up their checking account and manage all their assets that are essentially not cash that have to deal with their nonprofit. Okay. So how, how is that business going so far? And when, when it looks like you started it in 2021? Yeah. So we, we started at a specific time for a very specific reason during COVID a lot of nonprofits either got more emergency relief funding than they've ever got before, or unfortunately they didn't get any funding and they had to close up shop and go out of business. So the result of that is that there are fewer nonprofits existing, but the ones that do exist, a lot of them have excess cash, or at least they did at the time of COVID more than they've ever had before. Couple that with, you know, crazy bull market for stocks and crypto. A lot of people knew that they should start getting into alternative assets and investing, but didn't quite really know where to start. So that's exactly why we started our product. Um, we've we raised a million dollar pre-seed round from some great entrepreneurs and VC funds here in Atlanta. Try to keep things mostly local, and hired a few people. And yeah, we built the product, and within oh man, within probably three or six months, we already got a handful of paying customers, making revenue, growing the product trying to balance, you know, new features that we build and new product requests coming in along with compliance and regulation because we're a registered investment advisor. We have to deal with the SEC and all that stuff. Um, so obviously the market right now is a little funky, right? Un uncertain exactly where things are going to go and you can't really predict it. But so far we've had zero churn, zero withdrawals from our platform. And almost everyone who uses it says, oh my gosh, I've needed this forever. How come I didn't know this existed? So I, I'm led to believe that we're building the right product. And we're going to continue to work on improving our go-to-market strategy and, and scalability to reach the people who we want to help. So you're the, the chief technology officer of the company and in charge of product, right? So have you had to deal with all of that compliance stuff? Is that like a huge part of your time? <laughs> That's a large portion of my time. It's always funny. People think, oh man, you're a co-founder and chief technology officer for a fintech startup. Man, that must be so fun. You must be like writing code you know, designing the product, building it, all this stuff. And I, I do those things, but yeah, probably 70% of my time is dealing with attorneys, compliance, regulation. Um, yeah, it's a lot of in the weed stuff that frankly we do and we're experts at so that the everyday person doesn't have to worry about it, right? Because financial literacy is not something that we're taught very well in school, at least. And it's something that a lot of people struggle with. So it is a big part of my day, but there's a, there's almost meaning through the suffering, if you will, that because I spend so much time getting in the weeds, becoming a master of it, an expert, 
I'm able to make it a lot easier through a much better customer experience for our users who go through the product because I'm able to digest down what might be a really complex thing into something that's very simple to make it very, very easy for them. So yeah, compliance and regulation is, is definitely a headache. It's obviously important and there for a reason, but the fact that most money laundering happens through nonprofits because they're tax exempt, that definitely makes my life a lot more difficult mm. that I do a lot of stuff with identity theft and protection, anti-money laundering. There's, a, there's quite a lot that we do behind the scenes that you would never know about if you used our product. Well, I think that highlights an interesting point about chief technology officers too. You know, our job is to not necessarily write code, it's to translate the business requirements and understand how technology can help the business. And just as you described, it's like your job isn't as much about writing code, it's about figuring out what code to write, right? And um, understanding all the the compliance and legal stuff and all that, and then being able to also translate that to the team. You know, you're acting as you know, also the, the product manager, product, you know, vision about what the product's supposed to do. It's not about as much about writing code. Yeah, you nailed it. I think there's one sentence you said that I'll, I'll mess it up a little bit, but you said something about, it's not necessarily figuring out the right way to build something, but the right thing to build, right? Yeah. It's not building the right thing. It's figuring out what the right thing is to build. And I mean, that's, that's absolutely essential, right? It's, we're a business first and product second. And that's definitely not a natural instinct for a lot of people who are technical because it's fun to write, right? And you don't always think about people using the product. But at the end of the day, if you spend a ton of time writing code and building a product and no one uses it, that's called an expensive hobby. Uh, not necessarily expensive, but that's called a hobby. And that's totally fine to have. There's lots of side projects that I have where I'll just build something for fun, like the line sorting app. Never going to make money from that. It's just something that, yeah. so, you know, I spend two minutes doing every other morning when I write my LinkedIn post that it was fun to build and solves that problem for me. So it, it was a win. I loved it. And it will help other people too. But if you're not putting customers in the business first and really thinking about the holistic challenge of what are all the inputs that I need to achieve the outcome desired by my customer, not build the product or write code, but achieve the outcome desired by my customer, you're, you know, that's definitely getting into more junior developer thinking of just like, how do I go from A to B and build this? And if, you, if you're an engineer, technical founder, put the business first and the product second. It's uh, one of the hardest things to do because it feels very uncomfortable not writing code all day. But man, you know, you got to think, do you want to have a successful business or a successful product? Those are, those are two different things. Right. Well, if you need, if you need help writing code, um, Fullscale can help, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and see what developers are available to join your team today. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. So you you touch on something there I think that's really important, and it applies not just to software developers, but to business in general. And um, Simon Sinek was famous uh, from this from his TED Talk. You know, People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Yeah. Right. And that that's really the thing that that is important for any entrepreneur or any kind of business and translates all the way down to software developments like software developers have got to understand it. It doesn't matter how you write the code, what the code does. It's all about why you do it. And as a developer, that's kind of reverse thinking because we're thinking about writing the code. We're not necessarily thinking about the why. Um, but that's that's really critical, as you described. And I think the why is is important for many reasons. It, it helps align your team with your mission and what you're doing, right? But we talked about this whole grit or quit thing earlier. 
that's what keeps you going, right? When I was building my my music technology products, there were many days that I woke up and I just wanted to quit. I was done. I just had been rejected for too many days in a row, didn't see progress. When you know, when you build something and pour your, all your heart and energy into something and you don't see any progress for over a year, it's really hard to keep going. But my why was just going back to my younger self, having a lot of stage fright when trying to learn how to play music and I was not confident, had a lot of anxiety and you know, I'm very lucky that I was privileged to be able to have access to a private instructor who helped me get better. But there's so many people who don't, or they're just too nervous to play in front of others. And I knew that I had to help a lot of musicians who would have otherwise quit and didn't get to experience what I think is a really wonderful thing in life, playing music. So having that why definitely aligns your engineers and your team on what you're doing. But man, it sure gives you a lot of personal reason to keep going and clarity on why you're doing this and why you have to stick with yeah. it when things get tough. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it, it highlights that that grit, right? Like we talked about earlier of that's what keeps you motivated. You got to be passionate about the problem you're trying to solve. And as an entrepreneur, we all wake up once a week or every couple of weeks. We're like, why the hell am I doing this? You know, like, this is insane. Like, <laughs> Or sometimes multiple times my, per day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it it's really hard. And it's that passion for the problem you're trying to solve, the the why that keeps that that grit and and keeps you keeps you focused on it. So so tell me more about infinite giving and was there something about it from a product perspective or a technical spec perspective that was way harder to do than what you originally thought it would to do, you know, dealing with crypto or or stocks or legal compliance, was there something there that was way harder than you thought it was going to be? I think just the uh speed of releasing new features is something that's constantly a pain, right? That I'm used to, most of my so experiences the, come from- the speed of development. Yeah, so most of my experiences come from the B2C world. And to answer your question, no, there's not actually a single thing that was substantially harder than I expected. Um, we're essentially patching together a ton of different APIs because the whole financial industry and financial tech landscape, in my mind, is just a bunch of APIs abstracted on other APIs, abstracted on other APIs, which abstracted on like, a green screen and mainframe that's like handling all the financial transactions actually going on in our country. We're just layering on modern tech to try to handle working with old tech. And then we abstract that to a better API and a better API. So it's just a ton of APIs, but you know, I, most of my experience previously was in the consumer space, you know, building a lot of mobile apps, building apps for everyday people. And back in that world, it was, it was a much faster cycle for development where on day one, I'd have an idea and I would design it. Day two, I would code it, and day three, I'd ship it for, you know, not exaggerating, for simpler features, it was literally that fast, a couple of days, and it's out, because you could do that when your team's small. Come to, you know, this, it's B2B, working with nonprofits, and it's fintech, B2B fintech with nonprofits. That's just a lot of stuff, right? And so now it's more like month one, come out with the idea, sketch it out, review the regulations, come up with the design, make sure we're complying with stuff. Month two, have attorneys and compliance team review it, give you the proper disclosures, tweak your designs to make sure that you're not going to get in trouble if, you know, uh, someone, if you get audited and that ends up being something that's on the microscope. And then step three is actually build it, which is often working with some like pretty old school legacy APIs that can be kind of a pain because there's one thing that I, I don't compromise, which is the user experience, that it's going to be a great experience for customers and you know, we're going to do all the heavy lifting behind the scenes so that it literally just feels like magic, right? There's some things we do that, oh man, if you knew all the stuff we do behind the scenes, you would just be shocked. 
but that's that's what the best products do, right? They feel like magic right. and they they just work. Yep. And so the biggest challenge has been trying to be trying to maintain that impatience short term, like on a day to day basis, trying to get as much done as I can, but having more patience long term to realize, hey, we're going to ship this feature. It's going to be great. But realistically, it's going to take a couple months because of just all the different parties involved and how it's touching fintech and how it's real money. Like we handle millions of dollars on a daily basis for our customers. We can't we can't afford to have a bug in our code, right? If you have a you know a music app and it marks a note incorrect for a user and it's an error, it's not very catastrophic. It's annoying, but it's not catastrophic. If you accidentally you know do a sell order of a million dollars for a for an organization and they didn't want to do that or worse, accidentally transfer it to the wrong customer or something. Oh man, that's just the biggest the biggest nightmare in the world. So I think just all the different parties and regulations involved with what we have to do make it a challenge. And the fact that we're dealing with millions of dollars live constantly um, just requires us to have such a high level of quality assurance and QA review to, to get things right. Well, you bring up a, a great point that 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 we hear a lot on LinkedIn and stuff. People give advice about, oh, you need to do this kind of testing or this kind of thing or whatever. And you really highlighted there how it's dramatically different uh, depending on your type of business and your use case, right? It's like, you know, for your for your music app stuff, you know, the amount of testing you do, the amount of QA that you do could be very different from what you're doing today. Because like now it's like, hey, we screw up. We Maybe we just lost somebody millions of dollars or whatever. And my example is always like, you know, if I was creating software to control an airplane, like the level of testing would be totally different because we don't want the plane to fall out of the sky, right? Um, versus the music notes, like, hey, the music note was wrong. It was a C instead of a D or whatever. And th that's where you have to take advice from people that's so so different depending on your use case because you don't want to overcomplicate things that don't need the, the, the you know, the complexity and the, the compliance. So you can move faster. Right. Where if you're in a business where it's like, okay, the airplane could fall out of the sky, you need that level of, of compliance and complexity. I think that's where, you know, you listen to other people who give you advice. You always have to figure out how it applies to what you do because it, it could be very different. You know what I mean? You're absolutely right. When people give advice, and I'm just as guilty of this as everyone else, we give advice based on what's worked for us, right? Based on what has worked for us in the past. And yeah, on the level of like, airplane if it falls i die to financial product if there's an error i lose money to a music trading app if there's a bug it tells me i played the wrong note which is upsetting those are very different levels of catastrophic failures <laughs> right one is substantially yeah. more catastrophic than all the others so yeah i find it really helpful when when i when someone posts something or shares advice that I, my immediate gut actions, if my immediate gut reaction is disagreement with what they share, I usually ask them to tell me a bit about their background. And then I'm like, ah, I see you worked here or you were in this industry. That explains why you have that perspective. Yeah. Um, either that, or they have just something really incredible to teach me that I didn't know in a different mindset that I, that I can have. But, but yeah, when everyone, anyone shares your feedback, Take it with the grain of salt, but also evaluate why that's their perspective. I found that asking why do you why do you think that or why is that your opinion is much more powerful than simply saying I disagree with this perspective because you're probably both right, just in different ways. Well, and you we're pointing out here the value of diversity too, right? It's the value of people who've worked on different kinds of projects, have different points of um, perspective, and that diversity when building products and technology is super valuable, right? Knowing like I've done this kind of stuff before, worked in these kind of environments before, 
and the diversity of that background can be super valuable when you're building software and, and products, right? Like it'd be great for you to have somebody come into your team now that's worked on this kind of compliance and regulation, but it almost might be valuable to somebody who's worked on the other side that they can point out to you of like, hey, there are easier ways to do some of these things. You, you know, you know the, that diversity can help a lot. Oh, no doubt. I'm 100% with you on that. There's multiple studies that show this, right? More diverse teams, race, background, gender, skill level, all that stuff. Uh, it makes for a, an incredibly better team or else you're just all thinking the same way, doing the same thing. And there's one thing I've learned. If you have 10 people in a room and they all agree, man, you're probably heading very quickly down a bad direction because there should be yeah. a difference in opinions and perspectives. And if you don't have that, you need to look at who you're hiring. So you mentioned earlier in one of your previous startups, there was a time that you thought about quitting. And I'm curious if you tell us more about, about that. Like what, what had you thinking about quitting? Was there a certain, certain, certain piece to it? Honestly, Matt, I've probably, you know, the thought of quitting has gone through my head multiple times for almost every startup that I've worked on. Right. And I'd say if, if that doesn't happen to you, then something's, you know, it's normal to think about that all the time because it's, it's very difficult to go multiple days, months, even years without seeing a lot of progress and traction. Um, I kind of equate it to any new skill that you learn, right? If you put in, you know, 30 minutes every day or an hour every day, you're not really going to see the results after a week or ne two weeks necessarily. But man, if you can be that consistent and I, one of my favorite kind of little mathematical geeky formulas is just compounding interest. If you get 1% better every day, you get about 37 times better every year, right? 37 times better. But you know, you don't feel it necessarily every day. It's not until you look back and see the bigger time horizon that you can sometimes notice that change. So for me, I mean, I'll give an example with Crescendo. That was my music training app. Man, we went uh we went probably six to nine months before we actually had a product that felt good. And then we just completely missed time the sales cycle, the school year that for schools, they do almost all their purchasing in like July, August timeline for the year. And so if you didn't get in during that period, you kind of had to wait a whole another year before people buy it. There's a few people who will, but I'll say 90% of purchasing happens in that time frame. And so I remember very clearly waking up in the morning one day, I had nothing on the calendar, no, no boss, no manager, no one was going to tell me what to do. And I was just thinking, like, what, what am I doing? Am I, am I really just going to keep going at this? I was struggling with some team culture dynamic issues because our team was starting to lose steam and momentum, which made a ton of sense. I was definitely very jealous of a lot of other friends who had you know, high paying salaries at big tech companies. And I was struggling with money because I was you know, right out of college, didn't really have a ton of money. And yeah, there's many times that I thought about tossing in the towel and I just thought to myself, like, hey, you know, when I'm looking back on my life, would I regret not giving it, you know, a full shot and seeing it all the way through? And when I think about my customers, you know, how would I feel about giving up on them? And it's it's a really difficult decision because sometimes, no matter how hard you work, it's just not going to work based on the market because the market always wins. If you're building something that the market doesn't need, it doesn't matter how thoughtful and creative and smart and intelligent you are it's not going to work because the market doesn't need it. Right. And so, man, it's a really difficult game of if you really go with your gut and look at the data and believe in something, you just can't give up too early because almost everyone gives up too early. They give up when it gets a little hard and almost always 
a couple days or weeks after I had my lowest points were some of my biggest highs, right? That I remember one day I journaled that like, man, I'm, I'm actually thinking about tossing the towel and quitting now. Literally the next day I had a call from a school district and we closed a, uh, a five figure account with them, which was crazy. I just did not expect that to happen. So it's a, it's definitely a tough boundary, a tough line of, do I stick with it? Or is this just not ever going to work? However much I'm putting into it. And we either have to do like a, a pivot or I need to quit and move on to what's next. Well, as you described, right, you, you mentioned no matter, no matter how good of a product you build, if the market doesn't want it, doesn't need it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But then, as you said, it's like, it feels like sometimes it feels like the market doesn't want it. The market doesn't need it. And then you wait just long enough. And then all of a sudden, you know, the big school district calls you and you get a big deal, right? There's, there's a huge gray area there between the market doesn't want it. And just, you know, putting in the repetitions, you, you keep making the phone calls and everybody says no. And then after you get a hundred no's, eventually you get a yes. Right. And, um, there's a huge gray area there somewhere between <laughs> between those answers. Yeah, man. The, uh, the hardest thing is just like, what timeline do you deem acceptable for that process, right? Obviously, if you take a month and don't see any traction, well, that's everyone. No one's very rare that you'll see traction in a month. What about six months? What about a year? What about two years? What about five years? You got right. to really think about how much time are you going to put in. So for me, I usually have uh, not like, I haven't said this in stone, but I usually have like a ballpark range for me that if I don't see significant traction or progress within two years, then I'm going to call it quits, right? Um, then right. I give myself two years to see, you know, meaningful traction, early signs, or hopefully deeper signs of product market fit and ability to grow into something ideally through product led growth, just because being a product guy, I like when I can be able to grow from word of mouth and have my marketing costs to acquire customers below. So I think it's worth setting some parameters and guidelines for how you're going to go about this. But Man, in the end, you will just never have enough data to make a fully educated decision as a founder. And you got to go based on information you have at the table right now and what your gut says about what you're building and what the world needs. So we asked uh, Chat GPT before this about uh, deciding when to quit a business. And, and here's, <laughs> the, here's the answers it gave. All right. Lack of, lack of traction was on the list. We've been talking about that. Uh, insufficient funding was on the list. Competition. And a loss of key team members was another reason. Um, those are all really good reasons of why to quit a business. And <laughs> competition's a good one. So my my last company, Stackify, we we didn't quit, but competition became brutal for us. You know, competing we were competing against New Relic and Datadog and AppDynamics and, and these other companies, and we never quit. But it, it became brutally hard. Um, and it was one of the reasons that we sold. Is um, it was just difficult difficult to sell the product. And, you know, when we started, those competitors didn't really exist and they just raised a ton of money and, and, and became publicly traded and it just came brutal to compete against them. So there, there's a lot of good reasons to quit. I mean, maybe goods never, never the right term to use when talking about quitting, but <laughs> there are reasons to quit. No, there's definitely reasons. And honestly, I think good is the right word that you got to be like medium crazy to do a startup. There are many good reasons not to do a startup that clearly outweigh the risks to do a startup, right? Um, I mean, we can go on in terms of like, you know, pay and mental health and benefits and immediately have a team. And there's there's so many. But for the founders I know who have gone down this path, I don't think they seek to be happy every day. It's not the same kind of happiness you get in a lot of other jobs. 
where you have you know security and stability and you know that paycheck's coming and you're with the team right off the bat but it's definitely a level of fulfillment that i personally haven't found in many other areas of my life right and yeah. looking back man i'll i'll never forget when we finally got the acquisition paperwork signed for both my companies when i've gotten those emails from customers saying hey i you know this has changed my life i wanted to learn to play violin couldn't figure it out downloaded your app and now i'm you know principal violin player in the chicago philharmonic orchestra or meeting customers face to face and just hearing how stuff has impacted them when they didn't know that i built it and they were just talking about a product that they use those are the moments that yeah i uh those are the moments that stick with me that help me get through those tough times that inevitably happen but man that the level of fulfillment of like having an idea physically building it and then people use it like in their lives like normal people that's still one of the things that i'm just completely addicted to and and maybe on that train for quite some time and and so that is awesome and that would keep that's what keeps us going but on the flip side i posted about this on linkedin the other day what actually happens is you only hear about all the negatives right like <laughs> as a startup we the only thing you ever hear about is the hey it was supposed to be a c note but the software said it was a d note you hear about that like 100 times more often than you hear about the success stories unless you go talk to your customers because you know you're just hearing the negative the negative issues that come from the customers you know more often than not right and so as an entrepreneur it's also important that we go talk to customers that are using the product to also hear the success stories because otherwise all you're going to hear is the negative side of it because it's those success stories that are really important as well to learn from how people are using the product, but also keep us motivated. Like you just said, like that feels really good when you, when you hear the success stories. But if you don't go look for those success stories, you're going to more likely just hear the negative. You're absolutely right. And, and obviously negative information impacts us more severely than positive, right? Yeah. Like if you hear one piece of positive news, one piece of negative news, they don't cancel out. The, the negative weighs a little heavier. So yeah, I mean, you know, right there, talking to customers, the one thing important, the one thing software engineers don't want to do, we just want to interact with our computers and write code yeah. and work with the machine. But man, if you're going to build something for people, you got to talk to people. Maybe that's what we need to use AI for is to just tell them, how, tell us how awesome we are every day. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'd be okay with that. Like something that like, just gives me affirmations on a daily basis. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, that's your next weekend project. All right, there we go. Uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I can use AI to create that one too. Honestly, after seeing your video, that might be my first step. Start with the AI code and work from there. <laughs> well, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers. At FullScale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you, Learn more when you visit fullskill.io. Well, this has been awesome today. I always love doing episodes with other founders that also have a, a technical background. Um, it's always a very interesting conversation for me. So as we wrap up the episode today, um, you know, can you tell us a little more about infinite giving and, and where you see the future of that going? Yeah. I mean, the future is really the same mission that we set out, which is this financial operating system for nonprofits. There's so many organizations that are doing so much good in the world, but struggle with fundraising, investing, managing their assets. And we want to make managing every financial aspect of your organization as easy as just logging into your checking account and seeing your balance. So we're, we're going to continue to stay focused on 
making, you know, hard things like investing feel easy and hard things like stock donations and crypto donations feel easy so that we can help amplify the impact of all the nonprofits we get to help. Absolutely. So do you have any last tips for other entrepreneurs that are out there? Oh man, I always have tons of tips, but I, I know you have daily, (laughs) daily tips on LinkedIn and and maybe that's the point where people should go follow you on LinkedIn. Yeah. If you're, if you're on LinkedIn, feel free to give me a follow. Just Seth Radman. I also have this newsletter that I do probably about once or twice a month that I dive like super deep and get really nerdy and geeky on products and startup stuff. So you can find that on my website at radman.xyz. And I think the the tip that I'll that I'll leave you with today is just don't quit too early. I coach a lot of founders and it's going to get hard, but man, if you if you really believe in what you're doing, like be stubborn, be relentless and Don't quit too soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show today. And, you know, again, uh, it's it's Seth Radman. Check him out on LinkedIn and infinitegiving.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Matt Watson. I post stuff daily every day. Uh, I guess whether or not you want to see it or not. (laughs) It's good stuff. I think you should see it. (laughs) And uh, you can also find me on TikTok and stuff. I've been having fun doing the video stuff. So, Seth, when are you going to do video content? We'll see. I've... uh... Never really been one for being on camera much. I'm a little camera shy, but hey, embracing my inner creator, I'm soon I'm sure it'll happen eventually. Yeah, I have I'm having fun with it. So all right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Seth. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. This was a great time. See you guys. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.